You are now listening to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. My guest today is Benjamin Avalo. He has a degree in modern European history and earned his MD from the Yale University School of Medicine. He has written extensively on how trauma and punishment have shaped religion and myth and has also lobbied Congress on nuclear arms policy. He has written an excellent introduction to the war in Ukraine entitled How the West Brought War to Ukraine, which we'll be discussing on the show today. Benjamin, welcome to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Thanks, Alex. I'm glad to be here. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work. Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, let's see. <clears throat> I, I think my, my closest connection, actually, with all these issues was actually uh, several decades ago. I was working in Washington, D.C. on nuclear arms policy, uh, and I eventually kind of diverged from that path and uh, studied medicine and wrote a couple of medical textbooks and have done other types of research as well. And it was really with the start of the Ukraine war that I found myself, uh, I would say, pulled back into this kind of issue uh, or wanting to be pulled back into the issue, uh, in part because I saw a lot of the same patterns that I had seen, you know, a long time ago emerging. And I felt that I pretty quickly got a handle on what was going on and really didn't like what I was seeing in terms of policy, in terms of how the U.S. was uh, behaving, in terms of how the media was responding and presenting things in a way that I thought was really not uh, doing justice to the intelligence of the American people uh, and presenting what, you know, you, if you want to be generous about it, you could call it a, a simplified story or an oversimplified story. If you want to be a little sharper, I, I would call it propaganda. Um, so uh, that's, uh, I guess that's kind of the background for this book. And oh, actually, maybe I should add how I got into the book. You know, the book really started off, it was a surprise to me. I started off as a uh, writing, I wanted to just write a, a nice substantial op-ed. Uh, and then before long, I realized I can't fit it into an op-ed. And I wrote a fairly long piece on uh, uh, an online platform that I basically turned into a book um, when I realized... Uh, you know, that this is something that really should be out there in book form. And I got all kinds of great endorsements from, you know, top people, retired um, uh, U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, people who were in the State Department, people who were in the Defense Department, uh, academics, uh, and others, uh, and as well as people who were in the military, uh, Douglas McGregor, if people are familiar with him, who actually ran a very important NATO command center in Europe. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I was, I think the book came out, what, in July of 2022? It was not long after the war started. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fast. I mean, I really just got to work at it right away. Uh, and, you know, one of my goals was I didn't want to write a book that we sit on the, sitting on the shelf. I wanted to write something that people would actually read. So, and also that potentially could still influence policy. So, number one, I wanted to get it out really quick uh, before the whole war sort of settled into its, you know, long-term picture, if that's what it's going to be, uh, and also uh, keep it short enough that people would actually read it, not write some big tome. Uh, and of course, if I had written a, a long tome, it would have taken much longer to write anyway. So right. it kind of fit together nicely <laughs> that way. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, my my introduction to the war in Ukraine, I didn't really know anything at all about Ukrainian politics until the war broke out in February of 2022. And so from listening to various podcasts and reading different news articles, I kind of got bits and pieces of, of the, you know, I got, I got bits and pieces of the, the way that maybe the, the narrative as it had been portrayed by Western media was incorrect. But your book kind of really lays out uh, in a very organized and uh, chronologically driven fashion just how wrong that mainstream narrative is. But we've basically been told since the invasion last February um, that Russia is bad, Ukraine is good, and we should uh, support them. Would you mind uh, giving our audience just a little bit uh, more of that kind of standard narrative of the war in Ukraine? Because you open your book with an overview of the way that it's been portrayed by Western media outlets. Yeah. So you want to hear basically a little bit about the more the, more about the standard narrative, the way people yeah, are yeah, it yeah, in the, the, in the yeah, media. Yeah. The prop the propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> the propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's pretty easy to put it simply. It's that uh Putin is the new Hitler or the new Stalin, that he wants to um uh take over Europe the way uh Hitler wants to take over Europe, or he wants to recreate the uh, Soviet Empire, uh or as some scholars and on the uh who have these kind of views. They say he wants to recreate the Tsarist Imperium, not the Soviets, but what the the, uh, the Russian Tsars wanted to do. But it's all the same kind of story. It's a person who's, it's the story about a man uh, who's driven by a kind of irrational compulsion to take over uh, the civilized lands of Europe. Um, and that uh, he's not somebody who has any rational concerns for the uh, security of his people. Uh, he's not somebody who is um, uh, amenable to having serious discussions with or trying to have negotiated settlements. Uh, he's somebody who's really a kind of paranoid uh, militarist um, and that that's what he's all about. And that's a story we've been fed from day one. Uh, and I think that story is, uh, is not correct. Yeah, and we're going to dive into the details of that story as you lay them out in your book. But what's what's the biggest? I think what's the biggest problem with that mainstream understanding of the war? Yeah, I mean, I think it. Uh, I'll put it in two ways. Number one, it disregards the last thirty years of history uh, and the actual facts of relationships between the U.S. and uh, NATO and Russia. Uh, on the one hand, uh, on the other hand, it disregards uh, how the U.S. would react. If the shoe were on the other foot, I actually have a chapter in the book called, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot. You know, how would we react if uh, a, a power like Russia or China uh, moved its military forces, uh, either part of alliance or independently, uh, right up into a territory that's right on our border, moved into Canada or moved into Mexico, and then started doing some of the military exercises and actually live fire missile exercises that we've been doing right on Russia's border. Uh, you know, the U.S. would really respond very vigorously to that. Uh, the politicians, the, um, the military people, uh, ordinary citizens would feel extremely threatened. Uh, and in fact, this whole idea is, is basically uh, instantiated, brought into play in the form of the Monroe Doctrine, which for, uh, you know, basically the last 200 years has said that foreign military powers cannot place uh, you know, threatening military forces, even in the whole Western Hemisphere. Yet we have acted in a way with respect to Russia that's put those forces, not just in Russia's he hemisphere or, you know, within a few thousand miles, we've put them right on its border. Um, 
And in fact, uh, this is a bit of another discussion, but we've, we've actually done so in disregard of assurances that were given to Moscow 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. Yeah, and that's where I, I really want to start diving into the historical context of what's happening in Ukraine and right now. Because again, like with almost every story that is presented in the mainstream media, it appears as if uh, you know there's no history behind it. Like everyone thinks that this uh, conflict just began in February of 2022, but you say that it goes all the way back to the end of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And you kind of break the uh, the first couple chapters in your book up into kind of three distinct periods. And the first one are the events that took place between 1990 and 2014. So I want to I talk about that period there in particular, because the roots of sure. this conflict in Ukraine go back to the early 90s and then really all the way into the, uh, the 2000s there. So what are some of the major events that happened between 1990 and 2014 that would have been interpreted by the Russians as Western provocations? Yeah, sure. Um, and I like the way you frame that. It will be interpreted as Western provocations. It's, you know, I, I think that within the U.S., you know, there's a range of players who have a range of different opinions. Some of them are extremely aggressive towards Russia and, you know, want to promote regime change and all kinds of things. Others, I think, have a more, a somewhat more benign attitude, but actually are just misinterpreting uh, what's happening. Um, so, I think the first thing to realize is that the Cold War really formally ended even before the Soviet Union collapsed. The Soviet Union basically fell apart around 1991. Uh, but by 1989, Gorbachev was in power and relations had radically shifted. It was very clear that we were going to be dealing with a very different situation than we had been previously. Uh, and there were negotiations at that time to uh, unify Germany. You recall that Germany was broken up into East Germany, which is communist, and West Germany, which was allied with Western powers. Uh, and uh, the Western side uh, wanted to, uh, and also Germany itself wanted to uh, uh, reconnect itself, to bring itself, to unify itself, to reunify itself as a single country. Um, and the West wanted to do that under NATO auspices. And in order to get the agreement of then the Soviet Union, uh, the U.S. made a set, the U.S. and other Western powers made a set of assurances to Moscow that they would not expand NATO further eastward towards Russia's border. Uh, these were not formal treaty obligations, and this is often discussed that there was no actual promises made, but there were a whole set of assurances that are uh, can be uh, pulled out of written documents uh, and evidence uh, that these assurances were made that NATO would not expand in that way. Uh, and the reason why it was important to get Russia's, uh, to get Moscow, to get Moscow's agreement with this is that Moscow at that time, the Soviet Union, had roughly 400,000 troops stationed in East Germany. And to unify Germany, they would have to remove those troops to remove them under, to unify Germany under NATO auspices. So in any case, there were, uh, you know, I'll just call it simply assurances. You can call it promises if you want, although that's probably technically not correct, uh, that West would not expand uh, eastward. It, NATO would not expand eastward. Uh, but then very quickly, what happened was that the West began to think seriously about expanding NATO, uh, irrespective of what had been said. 
And by the late 90s, it was clear that they were going to. And actually, they brought in the first group of new countries in 1999. And then there were additional groups of countries brought in in 2004. And then for our purposes, what's very important is that they promised in 2008 at the NATO meeting in um, uh, Bucharest, Romania, uh, it was uh, basically stated that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. Uh, there were not steps taken to immediately bring them in, but the statement was made unequivocally that they would become NATO members. Now here, it's very important to remember that Ukraine is uh, right on Russia's border, just as Georgia is, and Ukraine has a 1,200-mile land border. Um, so we're really talking now, having moved really about 1,000 miles eastward from when Germany was reunified, uh, right up to Russia's border. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's pretty much a, a, key, a key point to keep in mind. And Russia made it very clear uh, from the beginning that this was really unacceptable. For instance, in 2008, uh, George Byrne, who's currently the CIA director under uh, Mr. Biden, uh, sent a cable uh, back to Condoleezza Rice, who was um, uh, George W. Bush's uh, secretary of state, basically saying the, the cable was titled uh, Moscow's Red Lines. Nyet means nyet. And, you know, you don't, you don't have to be a, a fluent Russian speaker to realize nyet means nyet means no means no that Russia would find it completely unacceptable, that this is a very, they would see this as a very dangerous threat to their security, and also that it might lead to a civil war within Ukraine, which in fact did happen. Um, and that Russia did not want to have a civil war on its borders, because then they would feel they had to choose sides. So, uh, and there are many people, many experts, George Kennan, who was uh, uh, ambassador to Moscow in the 40s, uh, he was the one who framed the um, uh, policy, U.S. policy of containment, of containing the Soviet Union. Uh, many others also argued that uh, this would be an extremely bad move for the U.S. to uh, push NATO up to Russia's borders. Uh, but these were all disregarded, uh, and uh, they went ahead and did it. And all of the, the sort of the worst predictions about what would happen if NATO expanded in this way have really now all come about. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about NATO during that time period as well. Why, why did NATO, I've, I've always wondered, because I thought that, you know, historically speaking, NATO was essentially designed to be a check on the Warsaw Pact, that it was the, it was the, um, you know, the, the treaty organization of all of the Western democracies, and that was supposed to be a check to the Soviet Union. What was the purpose of continuing NATO after the end of the Cold War? Or was it just that it had existed for a long time and people didn't want to give it up? Yeah, I, um, uh, that's a very good question. I, I think it was probably twofold. I think some people just could not adjust to the idea that we're now dealing with a very different situation. Uh, and by different situation, what I'll, I'll give a quote from George Kennan, whom I referred to a moment ago. George Kennan said that we are now treating as an enemy the very people who created the greatest bloodless revolution in the history of mankind, the very people who took down the Soviet Union, we are now treating as an enemy. And we are keeping a military alliance directed against them in place. Uh, so now that could have been for a variety of reasons, but I think one reason was there were probably some people who just couldn't get out of their head that we're dealing with a new situation. I think there are other people who really were... Uh, uh, 
committed to the idea of NATO and to wanting to maintain a kind of control over European powers, including Germany. Uh, uh, and I think further, there are other people, you know, there's tremendous money to be made in this. I mean, having maintaining a military power is this whole military industrial complex. Uh, you know, I just heard that this this coming year alone, uh, over two hundred billion dollars. I'm not talking about the U.S. Uh, government's military budget. I'm talking about money going directly into the coffers of military arms suppliers. Uh, over two hundred billion dollars this year are going into those pockets. Now that money washes through Congress in the form of donations. Uh, that money enters into think tanks that set policies. That money enters into academics and to academia, to universities that are also busy uh, trying to understand what's happening and setting policies. And it tilts the whole playing field towards a kind of militarism uh, and away from possibly peaceful solutions. So uh, uh, I think it's kind of a combination. Some people couldn't get their head around these radical changes. Some were uh, beholden to uh, either consciously or unconsciously to the quote unquote military industrial complex. Uh, and um, I think you also have to keep in mind that NATO itself has a bureaucratic uh, interest. Uh, I, I want to look into this a little bit more detail, but I think I've heard that NATO has actually 5,000 employees. I mean, they're a very significant uh, bureaucratic institution that has its own bureaucratic incentives to keep themselves alive. What are they going to do? Voluntarily go out of business? Have all those people have to start looking for new jobs? Have all the people that have a great deal of credibility and respect of their peers now all of a sudden, where are they? Um, so I think that this was these combination of factors probably played a very important role. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight to NATO. I'd never thought about it like that. Well, that that makes a lot of sense of kind of Western involvement from 1990 to around 2014. But you kind of have an inflection point in your book. Uh, in the years 2013 to 2014, there was a, a coup or I guess a revolution within Ukraine. And there it has been skepticism by several people, uh, several commentators on this in the United States, not those that are aligned with the mainstream media, but those that are coming at it from a perspective that is similar to yours, that the the coup who in Ukraine in 2013, 2014 was maybe not just American backed, but might have been orchestrated by the Americans. So could you could you explain to my audience what happened in 2013 and 2014 in Ukraine and the extent of U.S. involvement in that uh, incident? Uh yeah, sure. I mean, I think the first thing to keep in mind is just to reiterate something I said before, which is to keep in mind that during the whole period of 1990 to 2013 and 2014. Uh, NATO had been expanding and uh, uh, stating that Ukraine and Georgia would join NATO. So already there was sort of a great growing suspicion, uh, not just because NATO, not just because Russia felt uh, encroached upon and even encircled by Western powers in a way that they had been given assurances would not happen, uh, but that you had powers pushing right up uh, against their border. Um, and that they were responding already out of a sense of anxiety that this is what the West is doing, that they're pushing closer and closer to our borders, the same way the U.S. might respond, as I said before, with example of Canada or um, uh, Mexico. Uh, now, within that context, there was what's sometimes referred to as the revolution of dignity uh, in Ukraine that was going on. This was kind of a mass uprising. The immediate... Per 
reason had to do with that uh, Yanukovych, who was then the Ukrainian president, had ultimately decided not to enter into a particular type of association with the European Union. They never had the chance of joining the European Union, but it was a particular type of trade agreement. <clears throat> and there were actually very good reasons why he probably didn't want to join. Uh, the, the economic conditions were really not very good for Ukraine. The European Union was demanding that, uh, uh, that uh, was refusing to allow Ukraine uh, continued, uh, uh, the same continued status they'd been having with Russia with whom they were their major trading partners. Uh, and it looked like Ukraine actually stood to lose a lot of, a lot of money, but there was uh, still a strong sentiment among some people within Ukraine that they really wanted to have this association agreement. And eventually when Moscow uh, offered Ukraine $15 billion and steep discounts on gas, uh, Yanukovych decided to go with, um, to, uh, and, and also in the face of the fact that uh, the European Union would not allow Ukraine to continue its relationship with Russia in the same way in terms of economic trade. Uh, uh, Yanukovych decided to go with um, uh, the uh, to stay with their association with Russia, um, and this caused uh, uh, kind of mass protests in some areas, um, especially in Kiev. Um, now. At the same time that this is happening, and this is often not realized, and that was sometimes referred to as the revolution of dignity, people have this idea that this was just a mass popular uprising against a government that uh, was leaning more towards Russia than they would have wanted. But there was something else very significant that was happening that people don't realize uh, very often, many people don't realize, and is not being adequately reported in the press and was not adequately reported then is that there is an extreme right movement within Ukraine. Uh, some people call them Nazis, neo-Nazis, some call them fascists. There, it's the, the technical relationship is actually a little more diff different. Uh, there are, certainly are people who are actually uh, uh, Nazis and neo-Nazis in the far right, but the, um, it's better to think of them as sort of allied as a kind of a sibling movement with uh, Nazism and fascism uh, that's a particular... A type of Ukrainian nationalism. Any case, um, these people are not afraid to use violence. And although they actually have a small uh, minority in terms of their voting power, they exert a, a disproportionate power in terms of uh, uh, in terms of their influence by the threat of the gun. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. has historically backed those groups because they. Uh, serve to push Ukraine towards a more radical position. Um, and so as this, um, uh, you know, generally peaceful uprising was happening in Ukraine, the Ukrainian far right was extremely involved. And although they probably only constituted about 10% of the protesters, they were armed, they were inciting violence. And ultimately, they, they um, carried out multiple assassination attempts against Yanukovych, uh, and also remarkably, they actually carried out a massive false flag attack on the Ukrainian people who were protesting at the Maidan. The Maidan is the, uh, the independent square in Ukraine where a lot of the protests were happening. Uh, so the, the story in the West was that the violence against the protesters was carried out primarily by the uh, the then sitting Ukrainian government, Yanukovych and his uh, police. 
But what appears to be the case now, and I'll give some, uh, I'll point people to places they can explore this further if they want to, is that the there were uh, there were uh, killings that took place on the Maidan Square that were blamed against Yanukovych's police, but actually appear to have been false flag attacks carried out by the very people who came into power um, by some of these extreme right wing groups. Um, uh, and there's a, a Canadian, uh, a Ukrainian Canadian researcher named Ivan Kachanovsky, who has done a great deal of work on this, looking at all kinds of uh, video, audio information, uh, testimony by people who were shot, uh, testimony by people on the extreme right, testimony by uh, Yanukovych's police, uh, that makes it seem uh, really incontrovertible that much of the killing was carried out as a false flag attack by the Ukrainian far right. And that those are the people who basically forced into power the government uh, the lineage of government that is now sitting in Ukraine. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who are sitting in Ukraine right now are all a bunch of fascists or Nazis. Uh, the people, by and large, are not. Uh, and neither is the government. Uh, however, the Ukrainian far right is extremely powerful, and they can force through policies by threat of violence uh, that, uh, that especially when combined with the U.S.'s interest in trying to create a proxy war against Russia, can really force through policies that otherwise the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government would not want to force through. Um, so just to give an example, uh, you, you know, Vladimir Zelensky, the, the current president who came into power in 2019, most people don't realize that, but he came in with over a 70% voting majority uh, on a platform of making peace in Eastern Ukraine, where there was an ongoing war between the sort of the Russian supported and Russian leaning separatists and the Ukrainian army. Uh, and 14,000 people had been killed in that war. Um, uh, so you, uh, Zelensky came in uh, on a peace platform and received mass support for this. But what happened is, number one, the U.S. government really did not take his back. And number two, uh, there were threats, uh, including direct threats on his life, that if he tried to carry through these peace agendas, threats uh, against his life by the Ukrainian far right, that if he tried to carry through his peace agenda, he would be killed. One of them actually stated that he would be hung. Uh, and there were other threats as well. In addition, Zelensky... Uh, uh, brought in one of his close friends from the time when he was uh, a, a comedy star on TV, um, a man named, uh, uh, oh, uh, it slipped my mind the moment. I'll have to, I'll have to um, come to it, but who was actually his creative producer um, and um, uh, that was working to actively promote this peace platform. And on one of his uh, first uh, attempts to have an open public meeting about this, he was, phys he was physically attacked by the Ukrainian far right that stormed it. And then additional pressure came on to Zelensky himself. And this man was then removed from his position of trying to make peace. So you have this uh, terrible situation where the Ukrainian far right is exerting uh, really a tremendously outsized uh, uh, influence on internal Ukrainian politics that itself is kind of supported by a U.S. that seems hell-bent on, uh, for geostrategic reasons, doing whatever it can to put pressure on Russia. 
Uh, and although I don't think that most people in the U.S. government, you know, wanted to set a trap for uh, for Russia, I, I actually, you know, I say I, I don't think most did. That's my sense. I don't really know. But um, but there were certainly many who saw Russia as a tremendous threat. And once things started to get out of hand, were very happy to turn this into a major war with Russia, um, trying to defeat Russia. Some people wanted to have regime change, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and certainly to weaken Russia um, so that, uh, you know, basically teach Russia a lesson uh, and keep it from ever being able to do such a thing again, but with total disregard for any of Russia's own legitimate security needs and any of the reasons that it might have started a war for that reason. Yeah, that's a great review of the internal politics there from uh, the the coup up to the present time. Now, I know like during the coup too, like John McCain, I think, went over to Ukraine and met with the like the opposition leaders. Right. So there was like there was a, a, at least U.S. support for the people that ousted the the previous government in Ukraine during that revolution. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there definitely was. I mean, Victoria Nuland, who was then an assistant secretary of state, uh, you know, she bragged in 2013 that the U.S. had already given $5 billion in democracy promotion within Ukraine. Uh, there are also reports that uh, Svoboda, which is essentially a, a fascist uh, far-right uh, neo-Nazi party in Ukraine, that members, uh, two members of, of Svoboda uh, testified that uh, officials from the West, it was not specified who they were or which country they're associated with, had met with them. And actually, it looks like took steps that may have actually encouraged this uh, false flag attack. Um, so it's, it's a very complicated, ugly situation. Now, whether the CIA or other uh, U.S. institutions played a direct role in promoting the violence at that at the moment of the coup is not clear. Um, but they were very involved in pushing towards that, in laying the foundation for the violence, and certainly in providing some level of support for the extreme far right. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, and, and Russia was certainly aware of this. Um, and it was one reason why Russia at that point, uh, number one, took Crimea and ultimately decided to annex Crimea. And number two, why Russia supported some of the um, Russian speaking and ethnically Russian Ukrainians who were located in eastern Ukraine. Now, those people did not initially want to break away and form, uh, you know, enter Russia. They wanted to be part of Ukraine, but they wanted some level of autonomy. They wanted protection of their language rights, uh, uh, but this really proved to be unacceptable uh, to the Ukrainian government, um, which was under pressure from the far right. So what really could have been these peace negotiations, sometimes called the Minsk, uh, Minsk and Minsk II in 2014 and 2015, that really then could have made peace, were basically uh, you know, never carried through. Um, uh, in good measure because the West did not push them through. Uh, and then again, uh, when Zelensky came into power in 2019 and effectively wanted to bring back the Minsk II agreements, maybe not in those terms, but to have that kind of uh, uh, peace arrangement set up, uh, again, the far right stepped in, threatening lives. Uh, and also uh, the West refused to basically say to Zelensky, look, we have your back. Uh, you go ahead with your peace agree with your, what you want for peace, and we will help protect you. Um, uh, but instead, they did just the opposite. 
they did not want peace there. They wanted a vehicle for fomenting conflict with Russia. So what were some of the other very obvious Western provocations between 2014 and 2022? Because we have a really good sense of kind of the internal politics of Ukraine during that time period and some of the outside influence. But what were some of the other things? Uh, what were some of the other actions that were deliberately taken by Western powers leading up to 2022 after the coup? Yeah. Well, actually, let me go. I want to go back a step and sort of cover the whole area in a certain way. Uh uh, and just look at arms control for a second. And I also want to say that, you know, some of these arms steps were not taken necessarily to create a war with Russia, but I think they contributed to uh, the reasons why this war came about. So a very important reason is that uh, a very important arms control treaty that the U.S. has had with Russia uh, since uh, 1972 was the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. This is a treaty, an anti-ballistic missile is a missile that's designed to shoot down incoming uh, attacking nuclear missiles uh, or their warheads. And it may sound, uh, so an anti-ballistic missile is to shoot down the attacking weapons. And then the, uh, the treaty was actually to make it uh, illegal to develop those anti-weapon weapons. And it sounds strange. You would think on the surface, well, we want to be able to shoot down an attack on the U.S. But the reality is for technical reasons, it's virtually impossible to stop these incoming warheads. It's much easier to overcome them with additional warheads, even with dummy warheads that are made out of balloons. You can just launch almost an infinite number of those at minimal expense. So uh, the actual effect of setting up these protective uh, attempts at protective shields is to promote the development of more and more offensive weapons on both sides. So this um, treaty to prevent the deployment of anti-ballistic missiles was actually a, sort of a milestone of arms control and a way of stabilizing deter deterrence. Uh, and that was in place, as I said, I believe since 1972. But in 2001, George W. Bush decided to withdraw from that treaty uh, and um, uh, it was a unilateral withdrawal. This was not done with agreement to the, the Russians. Um, and then further, there was another uh, arms treaty uh, called the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. These are missiles that would be housed in Europe that have a range between, let's say, 500 and 5,500 kilometers uh, that would be targeted at Russia. And there was a treaty that was in place since 1987 that again, the U.S. unilaterally pulled out of that treaty in nineteen uh, in uh, two thousand nineteen, um, and these things were happening. Uh, you know, these arms treaties were actually pulled out of by Republicans, but there was a great deal of uh, damage that was done by Democrats as well. Uh, you, you know, at the very time of the twenty fourteen coup, uh, Obama was in power. And um, uh, uh, Biden was then vice president and as, was actually responsible for Ukraine policy. And the expansion of NATO was actually carried out and initiated under Bill Clinton, another Democrat. So I, I, these are not issues where one can properly, you know, bash the Democrats at the expense of the Republicans or Re Republicans at the expense of Democrats. These are very bad policies that have been carried out by both parties. Uh, and I think it's very important that we try to have a position that we are not trying to uh, argue for one political side versus another, but really trying to advocate for sane policies and criticize whoever might have been responsible for um, disrupting those sane policies. 
Um, and finally, uh, let me uh, move in a little bit closer to the time. And I think maybe this is what you were pointing to with your question. Um, during the last year before the war started, during 2020 and uh, 2021, let's call it the last two years before the war started, um, uh, there were a number of things that happened. You know, people hear these words, NATO expansion, and they it's sort of an abstraction. What does that even mean exactly? So I, I'd like to give one particular example that happened in Estonia uh, in 2020 and 2021. Now, Estonia, if you look at a map of Russia and you look at the northwestern border of Russia, uh, you know, pointing up in the direction of um, uh, the Scan Scandinavian countries, um, you have a, three vertical countries lined up, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, right on Russia's border. Uh, these are sometimes called the Baltic states. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, those countries were all brought into NATO, again, against the uh, assurances given by, uh, by the West. Uh, and in 2020, NATO carried out uh, what are referred to as live fire rocket exercises. Live fire means you didn't just stand around and, you know, turn a couple of keys and imagine you're filing, firing missiles. You actually fire the missiles. Now, they, were, they did not actually enter Russian territory and they did not have live warheads, but you are still talking about firing missiles. Uh, and those missiles were, uh, the drills were designed to target uh, inside Russia. They, these exercises took place 70 miles from Russia's border using missiles with a range of 185 miles. Then in 2021, uh, again in Estonia, uh, NATO did another set of live fire rocket exercises. This time they fired 24 missiles uh, that were specifically designed to target air defense targets inside Russia. They were designed to target defensive targets inside Russia. Um, now, of course, NATO said, look, we were doing this uh, not because we were planning a preemptive attack, but because we want to figure out what we can do if Russia rolls over the border and attacks Western Europe. But you have to look at how this looked from Russia's eyes. I mean, we're right on Russia's border, firing missiles capable of entering Russian territory with the stated goal of destroying defensive targets inside Russia. I mean, this is a kind of craziness that uh, and when Russia uh, responds uh, saying this is completely unacceptable. This has got to stop. It, it's quite understandable. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, you know, presenting quote unquote, the Russian position. I'm just stating facts. All you have to do is look again at how the U S would respond. If anything like this happened anywhere near the U S border. Uh, I mean, God, look, just look at what happened during the Cuban missile crisis. Uh, that was 90 miles or so from the U S uh, you know, um, uh, so, uh, and then at the very same time that th that was happening, uh, uh, NATO and the U.S. were again offering assurances that Ukraine and Georgia will enter NATO. So in, I believe it was in uh, April or June 2021 at a NATO meeting in Brussels, Brussels reaffirmed the 2008 statement that um, Ukraine and Russia will join NATO. And they stated again that Russia and Georgia will join NATO. And then within a few months, both the St U.S. State Department and U.S. Departments of Defense in separate documents signed with the Ukrainian government uh, affirmed that, again, Ukraine will join NATO. And then they actually uh, started taking steps to bring NATO Ukraine and 
uh, Georgia up to NATO military standards, even before Ukraine and Georgia would become members. Um, so uh, at this time, you know, Russia started making it very clear, this is all very unacceptable. We really can't abide this on our borders. Um, but the U.S. Uh, categorically refused to negotiate about the question of NATO expansion. They said, this is none of your business. This is between, uh, this is a decision to be made by Ukraine and a decision to be made, 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 made by NATO. Um, and uh, at this point, Russia started massing uh, troops on the uh, Ukrainian border. Uh, they offered uh, r specific written proposals to adjust NATO policies. Uh, and these were all disregarded by the West, uh, except around the, the edges. Um, the real issues of NATO expansion were just categorically stated to be unacceptable. And then shortly after that, the war broke out. Um, there were actually media reports uh, in The Intercept, for instance, that, uh, that there was no decision made to invade until February, until uh, one or two weeks into February, I believe, uh, just weeks before the war started. This was not a long-term plan. It really appears that the reason why Russia massed troops on uh, Ukraine's border was to try to exert a kind of um, uh, sometimes referred to as coercive diplomacy, a way of asserting, look, we, we can't deal with this. Uh, we, we're serious. Uh, we need to come to an agreement about how to deal with these security threats on our border or we're going to have to invade. Uh, now, whether Russia actually had other options, uh, I state in my book that they did. And they probably had some other options. I honestly am not sure at all that the, the West would have accepted them because the U.S. rejected just about everything. So, uh, you know, there's no way that I can justify an attack that kills thousands of civilians uh, or even that kills thousands of the military people who themselves are nothing but civilians. I mean, these are young boys and young men on both sides who are being uh, maimed and killed. Uh, so I can't justify any of that. But on the other hand, when you look at this from the country, from the, the position of a, of a military power like Russia or the U.S., and you say, what, as a practical matter, what do countries tolerate on their borders and what can they tolerate? Uh, the U.S. crossed all kinds of red lines. And there's just no way that if the Russians were to do something like this in Mexico or Canada, there's no way that the U.S. military establishment would just accept it. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very true. I think... Um, I think there's probably a real case to be made that the U.S. would have taken uh, uh, action, uh, aggressive military action, well sooner than than Russia actually ended up taking yeah. it. I want to um, circle back to the INF Treaty real quick because I think that there's this myth that a lot of libertarians have because uh, about, about Donald Trump and his presidency and his record on war in particular because he was the first president since Eisenhower to actually use the term military-industrial complex during his campaign, and he was much better than his two predecessors at starting wars in the Middle East, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily the dove that a lot of people make him out to be, so he is the one who's responsible for unilaterally pulling the United States out of the INF Treaty. But I thought that he was supposed to be friends with Vladimir Putin and trying to make peace with Russia, and he didn't want to get us entangled in any more foreign conflicts. So what do you think the rationale behind the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the INF Treaty could have possibly been based on their rhetoric towards Russia? Yeah. I mean, first, to be clear, he, he withdrew from the INF Treaty, uh, and he was also the first president to sell what are referred to as lethal weapons 
to Ukraine from the U.S. So he certainly took actions that were part of this kind of escalatory cycle. Um, now, uh, at the same time, I think one has to admit uh, simple truths about this, regardless whether one is a Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or whatever, is that these were not the goals that put, that um, uh, 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 that Trump came into office with. He came into office, you know, questioning the need for NATO. He he kind of came in with an attitude of, you know, do we really need all these military bases all over the world, eight hundred of them? Um, he came in with an idea that uh, the U.S. and Russia should have peaceful relationships and perhaps even really harmonious relationships and perhaps even work together in some important areas like the the war on terror. I mean, I don't want to use that term, but, uh, you know, to deal with uh, terrorist threats together, which both countries are subjected to. But of course, you know, one of the things that happened was that uh, tremendous pressure was put on him. There was the entire, uh, you know, Russiagate narrative, which now, you know, seems to be increasingly being unwound, even in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these places. The entire story that, you know, Trump colluded with Russia in, uh, you know, undermining the elections and leading to his election uh, is now seems to be thoroughly debunked uh, or in the process of being thoroughly debunked. But in the meantime, uh, you know, uh, this was, you know, exerting tremendous pressure on Trump. And I think he caved in to the pressure and felt the need to prove his uh, his bona fides, to prove that he really was not, you know, Putin's puppet, quote unquote. Um, so uh, uh, I I did not vote for Trump. I don't plan to vote for him in the coming election. I didn't vote for Biden either. And I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Didn't vote for any of these people. I don't have much respect for any of them, frankly. But um, uh, but um, uh, I, I just think that one needs to, to look honestly at what's happened and to see that this is really uh, – uh, oh, I, I'm sorry. What I, what I wanted to say there was um, I don't think that Trump handled the situation correctly. I think on – I would call it uh, – in one way, he caved in uh, and he didn't have the moral fiber to stand up to this kind of sustained attack. And he eventually became a, as anti-Russian as everyone else, or at least he took actions that were anti-Russian. Um, on the other hand, I don't think he had a deep enough understanding of what was actually happening in order to be able to have a, a truly principled position. I think that somebody else could have stood up and said, this is just nonsense. You know, what's going on with Russia here? Um, uh, I also, it also, I mean, this is, you know, I'm not saying anything you don't know. You probably know this better than I do. I don't follow politics in this, in this country super closely, but, uh, you know, it's often been said that he made a very serious mistake of putting people who were opposed to his policies into his own government. Um, so I think he lacked a certain kind of even purely political savvy. Uh, you know, if he becomes, if he's reelected, I have no idea what his policies would be. I don't know who he would bring into office. Um, whether he would be a, a very positive force at that point or a very negative force. I really can't say. Um, but uh, I think he made bad mistakes. I think there were ways in which he did not stand up as strongly to this uh, false narrative as he could have. Um, and I also think that the, the ultimate blame really belongs on the people who created this false narrative uh, and basically put pressure on. I mean, what we've really got here now is not only a new Cold War, but a new hot war 
that was created because of a false narrative that was put forward uh, about uh, you know Trump's collusion with the Russians. I mean, it it it, it started off as a I think probably just a trick by the Democratic National Convention and by the Hillary Clinton's campaign to, uh, you know, try to, uh, uh, you know, whatever they're trying to do, divert attention from the, the handling of um, uh, Bernie Sanders or the fact that Hillary had, um, you know, confidential information on private servers, etc. cetera. Uh, but this has grown well beyond this and has now become ultimately the basis for a, what's potentially a major war and conceivably even a nuclear war for Russia, uh, because it's, it's laid the foundation for a kind of mass uh, Russia hatred uh, within a large part of the U.S. population. Uh, and it's, it's extremely dangerous and extremely regrettable that it happened. Yeah. And you, you claim in your book that there is a distinct Russia phobia is the term that you use among policymakers in Washington. What do you mean by the term Russia phobia? Is it just kind of like that irrational fear of the Russians or what, what, what's involved in that term? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I, I think if you look up Russophobia, probably, or, you know, the word phobia, I think would usually just mean, you know, we talk about, I have a phobia of snakes or I have a phobia of spiders or, you know, dogs or who knows what, you know, I think it either means a fear or hatred of. So I think there's a range of people who on the one hand fear Russia, on the other hand, hate Russia, uh, and want to do everything they can to destroy it as a country. Um, and I think some of those people come to this, uh, you know, what they perceive at least to be honestly, they, 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 they see Russia as a kind of a continuation of the Soviet empire and they want to, uh, you know, tear the whole thing down. I think they're very wrong about that. And I think the evidence is that they're wrong about that, but I think they are at least um, coming at this. Uh, they're not biased by financial or other interests. They have a deep belief in this. On the other hand, there are huge numbers of people who are deeply influenced by these vast pools of money. I already mentioned $200 billion coming into the, uh, uh, the arms industry just this coming year. I mean, we're talking about trillions of dollars over time. Uh, and it's, it's a very good business decision uh, from those companies to uh, fund Congress and think tanks and academia <clears throat> and to exert whatever control they can over the media as well um, to uh, push for more militaristic policies. So I think the entire playing field is tilted towards militarism, uh, and that affects everyone, and it ultimately affects the messages that we, you know, quote-unquote, ordinary citizens receive. And we're all susceptible to it. I mean, I you know, as much as I know, and as much as I think about these issues, it's, you know, you, you, if you focus and read the mainstream media, and you don't have other sources of information, it's very hard not to fall prey to a kind of social pressure. Um, so, I, I mean, the whole thing is reprehensible. The very media that, uh, you know, that we expect and that should uh, come into play to provide the background and context for what is happening and to do deep investigations to what's really happening within our governments have basically become little more than propaganda wings of the state. Um, and uh, it's just terrible. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And you you say in your book, too, that this pessimistic attitude that the West has towards Russia kind of creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you also go from that argument and you draw a parallel between what's happening now to the situation that took place in Europe uh, on the eve of World War One. Could you explain both how um, our pessimistic attitude towards Russia is a self-fulfilling prophecy and how this is creating a, like a World War One type situation in Europe right now? Yeah, let me uh, start with the first one first. Uh, so how does this um, pessimistic attitude toward uh, Russia become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, <clears throat> let me let me come back to the idea of NATO expansion again, and especially some of these very aggressive NATO exercises right on Russia's border. Um, if you are absolutely convinced that Russia is a very aggressive expansionist power and can only be constrained by the most potent kinds of military threats, uh, you will feel, well, it's not a great thing to be doing, but the only way we're going to stop these paranoid, aggressive, militaristic sons of guns, or whatever you want to call them, I'm trying to avoid uh, <laughs> vulgarities, um, uh, is to show them right on their border that we're going to blow them to kingdom come if they do anything. Now, uh, that, of course, however defensively it's perceived by the people who are carrying it out, are perceived as an offensive threat by the other side. There's uh, something within political science or international relations theory called the security dilemma, where an action that's taken by one side that it perceives as defensive is perceived by the other side as offensive and as a threat. Uh, and then that other side that now feels threatened then takes actions that it perceives as defensive that the initi initiating side now perceives as offensive. And it kind of becomes a spiral, a vicious spiral. So if you go into a situation convinced that one side is a dangerous offensive threat uh, that must be uh, resisted and uh, deterred by very, very aggressive actions on even close to its border, you are going to create a situation that you bring about the very threats and dangers that you imagine you are protecting against. So that's, that's one piece of it. Uh, the second piece, uh, j just remind me, Alex, what, what was the second uh, oh, question just you asked there? The, the, the parallel between what's happening right now in Europe and World War yeah, I. Yeah, and World War I, right. Yes, of course. Um, you know, World War One is a whole complex phenomenon. I mean, I studied European history in college, uh, and you know, I did not ever get to the bottom of World War One, and I certainly am not to the bottom of it now. There's very uh, complicated understandings of the different reasons why that war started, but one reason that many people accept as having been the true reason is that this was kind of um, uh, what was sometimes referred to as the West sleepwalked into war. There was at that time a military arms race between Great Britain and uh, 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 Germany. Um, and uh, a, it was a specifically a naval arms race. You know, naval uh, 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 Great Britain was sort of a declining world naval power and uh, Germany was rising. 
And the two, pow uh, two powers basically got into a military arms race and it escalated. And eventually there was a, uh, you know, a killing of the Archduke in uh, Serbia. And, you know, there were a lot of specific reasons that brought this about. But some of the very important, sometimes what are referred to as structural foundations of the whole war were basically sort of an ongoing arms race and a sense of aggressive military threat between uh, the Allied and the Axis powers at that point. Um, so, uh, you know, we see something that really it seems to be quite similar here. We have, you know, what started off as um, uh, overly aggressive actions by the West towards Russia. Russia responded in ways that ultimately, uh, you know, that first they took Crimea and then they supported the uh, the separatists in Donbass. And then the U.S. and the West supported the 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 uh, the the fascist, uh, the far right in Ukraine uh, that was also extremely Russophobic. By the way, the far right in Ukraine has a deep hatred of Russia. Um, uh, uh, so that you kind of have this cycle of escalation where at least in principle, neither side wants to go to war, but that we move closer and closer to war. And then, of course, we had an actual hot war broke out. Uh, and that war itself, even within the context of the war, keeps escalating. You know, it started off as, as it really was a uh, limited military operation by Russia, 170,000 or 180,000 troops. That's not how you take over a country. Um, they were, even as they were doing that, they were offering to negotiate. Uh, they were actually uh, sitting down at the peace table with Ukraine uh, in, uh, in Turkey in March just the month after the war started. Um, uh, and then the war has escalated since then. You know, the, the uh, Ukrainians attacked the Kirsch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the mainland Russia. The U.S., which started off by saying, well, we'll give, we'll give Javelin anti-tank weapons, but we won't give Stingers anti-aircraft. Then they started giving Stingers, then they started giving more and more. Um, and now we're talking about heavy tanks. Uh, you know, along the way, the, um, the, the Nord Stream gas pipelines were blown up, um, uh, that itself led to an escalation, but it appears very likely that that attack on this major infrastructure project that was shared, uh, was owned by Russia and Germany. Uh, it appears that that was actually carried out by some Western power and that the U.S. very likely was involved. Um, that's the, there's no, direct evidence of that, but there's an awful lot of circumstantial evidence that points to that. So my point simply here is not to uh, digress into all the different ways in which infrastructure have been attacked in this war. Oh, and now we have attacks by the Russians on the Ukrainian infrastructure, the power grids uh, and all of that, which was not part of the, Rus the Russian plan initially. You know, unlike the U.S. that went into Iraq you know, blowing everything to kingdom come. This was the, uh, the shock and awe campaign, yeah. uh, you know, by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, uh, which basically we opened the war by attacking infrastructure. Uh, and that was a war, of course, we were lied into. But, um, you know, Russia did not do that for months. And it was only when these infrastructure attacks took place and only when it became very clear that the West really did not seem very interested in negotiating towards a peaceful uh, resolution of this, um, that then Russia started really attacking uh, Ukrainian infrastructure and escalating the whole war. Um, uh, the same is true with the um, the taking of the four territories inside Russia, the uh, the oblasts, 
um, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk and Zaporizhia and Kershan regions. Um, that was not uh, apparently part of the original plan. And the negotiations that were taking place in Turkey between Russia and uh, Ukraine were actually towards moving back to what technically is referred to as the status quo anti-bellum, bellum referring to war, the status quo before the war started, moving back to Russian positions before the war started. They would have kept you, they would have kept Crimea. Uh, there would have been some kind of uh, semi-independent status for the, the Donbass territories. There would have been some discussion and arrangement for uh, Ukraine to become a neutral power uh, and not be aligned with NATO. Uh, that the West would renounce NATO as the U.S. Uh, re would renounce Ukraine as a NATO member, uh, and that there might be some kind of pullback of some Western uh, NATO p troops and, and power uh, forces and uh, equipment from some of the uh, uh, East European countries. Um, but uh, you know, but then the war continued; uh, it escalated. Russia took territories. The West, uh, you know, the West and Ukraine attacked infrastructure. Uh, Russia now attacked. And then where is this going to end? Are we going to end in a nuclear war? I mean, I don't really see signs of a peaceful resolution to this. Uh, and what I do see is two nuclear armed superpowers going at it increasingly. Yeah. That, and that's I, that's a question I wanted to get to, too. Like, we all know that this could end in a nuclear war. And there are several Western policymakers that have been very um, that have been very, um, I guess, open about the fact that this could easily devolve into a nuclear war. So given the fact that that is the greatest threat to humanity uh, in the history of the world, why would Western policymakers continue to be belligerent towards Russia and not seek peace if they know that this could end in some sort of nuclear war that would result in the death of millions if not billions of people yeah it's 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 a very good question and very hard to give a definitive answer to uh i would try it this way uh there is a washington policy elite that would sooner see the world blow up than to admit they were wrong uh i think it comes down as simple as that i mean you know, let me just wax psychological for a second and talk about myself. And I think I, sus I suspect you and probably all of your listeners can see some of this within themselves. I can think of situations where I have been in support of a particular position. And I've stated that to even just to friends or to small groups of people, and I've argued it. And then I've later started to question that. It is extremely hard to admit you were wrong. I mean, you know, this is what the Buddhists would call, you know, ego and things of this nature. It's extremely difficult psychologically to admit we're wrong, especially when we've gone public about it. Uh, how much more so would it be wrong that the people, the very people who have promoted the policies that have led to this war over a period of decades um, uh, and have maintained an entire institutional structure in, in Europe, uh, you know, NATO, Europe and, and the US, and have had policies and have uh, advocated uh, regime change in Russia, how much more so would it be difficult for those people to admit that they are wrong? I mean, psychologically, I really think that some of these people would rather have the world end than to admit they're wrong. I think psychologically, it's extremely difficult for them to admit they're wrong. And the reality is they're not going to admit they're wrong for these reasons. Uh, and this is why I think it's so important for American citizens to basically not take this stuff sitting down, to really get involved in saying this is all unacceptable. This must be ended now. 
Yeah. The other aspect of that that I want to talk about, too, is we, we've talked about the military industrial complex before. And I actually had Lori Calhoun from the Libertarian Institute on my show last year to talk about this. And it's really eye opening conversation that I have with her. But there are a couple of things that I, I've seen that are really interesting with respect to the war in Ukraine and the military industrial complex. The first is that we are obviously in a time of deep recession. And the companies that seem to be posting the biggest stock gains are companies like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin that produce missiles and guns and all of those kinds of things. And so they seem to be benefiting from this war in Ukraine financially, as you've alluded to before. And then also we had the American withdrawal from Afghanistan in uh, 2021. And my own congressperson, Thomas Massey, has said before that the amount of money that we're spending in Ukraine right now is suspiciously similar to the amount of money that we were spending in Afghanistan before the drawdown. So how much of this do you think is driven by the financial incentives of of the military industrial complex and all of these defense companies, because I mean, we all know that they they bought out hundreds of politicians. How much of this is a scheme for them to continue to make money now that some of the uh, the cash cows of the war on terror are coming to an end? Yeah, I think that's probably a lot of it. I think, um, and you know, I, I, this is not an original position on my part. I mean, people have commented on the fact that at a certain point, it just became clear that the war on terror was not going to provide the justification for the the kind of continued military military um, uh, budgets that the U.S. had been having, um, and the war on terror, especially in the later phases, does not lead to the production of. Um, uh, you know, submarines, aircraft carriers, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, some of these really massive, uh, projects. So I think it's, um, <clears throat> I think it's definitely a strong influence. I think there's some people who are very directly influenced. I think there are others that are deeply shaped by the fact that the entire playing field has been tilted in terms of what's sort of seen as reasonable responses to some of these things. You know, you mentioned Raytheon. My understanding is that Lloyd Austin was previously a uh, board director at Raytheon. So, I mean, there's a really, it's, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but there really is a revolving door between the defense department and these uh, arms industries. Um, at the same time, I want to say also, I just want to tip my hat again that, uh, you know, and this is something I struggle with myself, is how much moral culpability do these people have? You know, how much are they really uh, taking evil actions that they wouldn't be taking if it weren't for the, um, or let's say destructive actions, if it weren't for all the money being washed around? Uh, and I think there's certainly some of that. But I also want to say there really are people, I think, who are uh, come by it, come by the, what I perceive to be the, a very wrong policy, but they come by it honestly. They really believe some of these things. Um, and uh, about Russia. Um, and they really believe that the only way to prevent Russia from, you know, whatever, ro rolling over Western Europe or something crazy like that, uh, is to uh, have these kind of extremely aggressive, uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. So I, I just want to say that um, I, I don't mean to personally smear uh, everyone who has these other positions. I think some of them really believe it. Uh, and they're entitled to their views. But I think that those of us who have very different views and have what we believe to be a much stronger case, uh, it's really uh, incumbent, incumbent on us to, uh, to stand up and argue these cases strongly, notwithstanding whatever social pressure we feel that we might be called Putin's puppet or Kremlin propagandists or whatever, or notwithstanding what the newspapers are saying, but to basically take a, um, 
uh, almost a, a no holds barred attitude and just say, I'm not going to play defense here. I'm going to, of course, I mean, uh, you know, I don't mean any, any uh, aggressive or violent action. I'm talking about peaceful actions. But, um, uh, but I, think, um, I think people make a mistake when they say, well, you know, I don't really want to sound uh, like I might be Putin's puppet. I don't want to be accused <laughs> of that. Um, I think people have to say, uh, you know, say what the truth is. That's the only way this problem is going to get undone. Yeah. Well, I got one more question for you here. Where do you see the war headed in 2023? And do you see any possibility that there will be a resolution to this war anytime soon? <clears throat> Boy, I, I wish I could predict the future uh, is, <laughs> is sort of the best answer I can give. Um, and I have to say also, you know, some of that may require a kind of expertise that I really don't have. I mean, you know, I hear very credible voices on both sides arguing on the one hand saying there's no way in the world that, that, that NATO can possibly, be, uh, you know, defeat uh, Russia, no matter what happens. I hear other people that, you know, have more experience than I do uh, saying, you know, if NATO really goes in on this all out, uh, then maybe they can really force uh, Russia to uh, into a losing position. But of course, what does that mean, a losing position? Russia's not going to let a losing position happen on its border. They would go to nuclear war before that happens. Uh, but my, my point simply is that there's there's so many complicating factors that I don't know the, the, the real answer. Um, I That said, uh, you know, if I'll take a little bit of a leap, um, I don't see almost anything in the West that gives me a lot of hope. That, that we're going to have a peaceful end to this. Um, I, I, I'm just afraid it's going to keep escalating. Um, and, uh, you know, I really hope at some point between now and nuclear war, some saner heads prevail in the West. But instead, what I see right now is, uh, you know, uh, active movement of uh, heavy battle tanks in um, massing of, I, if I understand correctly, 300,000 Polish troops inside Poland, you know, I don't, maybe massing is too an immediate a word, but uh, uh, putting together of a, of a massive military force within Poland of 300,000 troops. Um, you have uh, NATO forces, U.S. forces in uh, Romania uh, that are, you know, practicing war with Russia. Uh, I mean, I do not put it beyond the people who are in power now that this will actually become a direct war with Russia. And that they will sort of, for no good reason, imagine that it won't eventuate in nuclear war. I mean, what it does seem to be the case uh, is that we hear people saying that we, we now have more confidence that Russia will not launch a nuclear war. Well, they have more confidence because it hasn't happened yet. They really have no basis for this otherwise. Russia has made it very clear that it is part of their policy that if they feel that their homeland is being threatened, uh, that they will... Uh, consider the use of nuclear weapons. Doesn't mean they will use them, but this is part of their policy. Um, uh, just as I'm sure it would be U.S. policy if, if we felt that our homeland was threatened. So uh, the idea that we can keep taking these very provocative steps rather than seeking a negotiated settlement, and we can just keep upping the ante and keep trying to force Russia into a position where Ukraine will allegedly have be in a better position for a uh, negotiated settlement uh, on more favorable terms, quote unquote, uh, this could lead to a nuclear war. So um, 
so I guess to answer your direct question is, you know, why, why aren't they more afraid of nuclear war? And I don't think there's a good reason for it. I think these are people who are wrapped so up in their rhetoric uh, that we are at imminent risk, risk of Russia and we have to defeat Russia. And we've already thrown in massive military and economic forces into this. We can't back down now. Uh, besides, it will make uh, NATO look like uh, NATO. NATO will lose all credibility. So now, having poured all this in, now NATO's credibility becomes on the line. So now this is... This was never a vital interest of the United States, and it's not now. Uh, but uh, but people in the U.S. and in NATO are trying to make it a vital interest by saying the whole Western alliance will fall apart if we don't keep fighting. It's it's a kind of uh, craziness. Uh, well, I, I guess the, I guess the best that we can do is keep talking about it and hope and we can convince enough people to turn against the the war. I, I really appreciate you being on the show today. This was an amazing overview of the book, an amazing overview of the situation in Ukraine. Before I let you go, where can people find your work? Sure. Uh, first of all, just to show the book for people who can see it. This is the book, How the West Brought War to Ukraine. Uh, you can pick that up at your local bookstore. You may have to order it. You can get it through online venues, Barnes & Noble. Amazon certainly has it. Um, uh, you can get it through Amazon prime that way. Um, it's a short little book about 88 pages, uh, very well endorsed. So you can get that anywhere. You can also check out my website, benjaminabelo.com. Uh, you can also find me. I do post some good links to look at on me the medium platform. Uh, I think that covers it. Uh, anything else? Oh, I think that's perfect. And I'll be putting links to everything on the show notes. And uh, I'll put some some links up on Twitter, too, so that everyone can uh, can read the book. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Alex. You take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about the show, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at ProLibertyPod. You can also support the show by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.